Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, um, and also here as the moderator of a program uh, sponsored by the Commonwealth Club. Um, to speak today, we have John Judas, the uh, well-known political commentator and political theorist, um, and he has a new book out, The Politics of Our Time, um, which is a, a lot of very interesting ideas that we're going to go into in just a second. But first, I'd like to welcome our online audiences. We've been doing these programs for well over a year now, have, I think, more than 500 programs online. Um, and we are thinking about making you know, live programs. We're thinking ahead just in the next couple of months. But we are still going to keep uh, doing our online programs until we can reopen live at the Commonwealth Club's offices at 110 the Embarcadero in San Francisco. So welcome to another one of our online programs, our virtual discussions with authors. And uh, John is uh, with us from the East Coast. Where are you located, John? You're in New York, right? It's Silver Spring, Maryland. Oh, Silver Spring, Maryland. East. Okay. Been here for um, a long time. <laughs> so uh, first of all, you call the book The Politics of Our Time. But in your book, you also talk about how this, these are ideas that have been going on a long time and talk about their history. You, you, you talk about three big issues, populism, nationalism, and socialism. And, and uh, all of those ideas have come and gone and come and gone, you know, over the decades, over the centuries. Uh, one of the things I like to think about these things is that no idea in, in human politics is new. Uh, they're all there and have been there before. It's just that they lose and gain market share, so to speak, uh, over time. Um, but this time we have three big issues, three big uh, approaches, uh, which are gaining market share. And um, they coalesced uh, together in ways, and not just in the United States, but throughout Europe and in other locations. So um, I thought your, your perspective on Europe on top of everything else, was very, very helpful that this is not just an American phenomenon. This is something that's happening everywhere. So one of the things is you compare it to different times in the past. Um, how A lot of people talk about this, these 20s, especially because of the pandemic matching the Spanish flu, et cetera, uh, that they are going to be just the same as before. And that scares people, of course, because of what happened in the 30s and the 40s. So why don't you explain what you think the differences are, uh, the similarities and the differences are of what we're up to right now. With what? You mean with the... Uh, with, with, with what happened in the 1920s, with, with, the, with, with the increase in interest in socialism in the 1920s, right. and, 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 the, and nationalism, obviously, too, and, and there were populism maybe was uh, a little earlier than that. But, uh, but the three right. issues that you write about were all happening in the 1920s, but you, you cogently describe the difference. Uh, between then and now. And I, I thought that, that would be useful for people who are worried we're about to repeat history. Okay, well, okay, we'll take a journey through the past. Yeah. I don't, uh, be, you know, a lot of people now talk about a civil war happening in America mm -hmm. and uh, about our facing a time of uh, similar to Central Europe with fascism coming. Um, my, in my mind, the, the best comparison is probably from the 1890s to the 19, uh, late 1920s, early 1930s, mm -hmm. uh, when we had an agrarian, agrarian economy uh, beginning to uh, lose its standing in America. You know, even after the Civil War, most people were, worked on farms. 
And you had a, an array of protest movements on the left and the right, um, populist, socialist, um, Ku Klux Klan uh, really revives after a World War I. And you had these moments of, of where everything seems to blow up, like the early, that time of the influenza, 1918, mm -hmm. 1919, the United States. Mass strikes, um, formation of the Communist Party. Also, the, again, again, the Ku Klux Klan revives then. You have these race riots in Chicago, Tulsa. So we're having these moments of ferment, but everything has not quite come together. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things I look, look, look at is, and again, this is similar to the late 1920s, early 1930s, is that we're really in a time uh, where big government is on the rise, where the public sector is going to have to take a much larger role in our lives. And, you know, we see that with the pandemic. Uh, we see it with climate change. Uh, we see it with the problem that we now have with global supply chains where, you know, there was a big article in the New York Times today about uh, Apple's uh, uh, dependence on China. Yeah, you know, that's going to be a that's going to be a big issue again. Mm -hmm. uh, how to what extent are we going to bring things home? To what extent can we? So in that context, it's very similar to the kind of uh, things that happened in the late 1920s when you know, older ideas about the relationship between government and the economy uh, became suddenly became in, came into question. Uh, we're now at a time where things like free trade is no longer an obvious good in the way it was. You couldn't, you can't mm -hmm. simply appeal to that. So we're going to have a, a much more government intervention. The question is what direction it takes. And I mean, there's sort of three extremes. Uh, one is uh, what happened in Central Europe, where you have the, the right-wing version, fascism. Um, you know, there's some scary kind of things happened uh, after, no after the November election. Mm -hmm. uh, they're really um, unique in the history of this country, really where the, the very base most basic thing about a democracy in many ways is the succession, the, the mm -hmm. idea that rulers succeed, succeed each other through election thrown into question. So, you know, you saw um, I, some... I have one thing ripped from... You, you talked about the headlines. I have something that's perfect right here. Ripped from the headlines, there was this news about Trump uh, in a few days after um, the uh, lost, losing the election, having a memo done to uh, bring the troops home from everywhere throughout the world. It didn't happen, obviously. Um, right. But, but uh, that kind of um, action... I mean, do you... It would seem to me, at least, that, that if that gets well known and more widely uh, distributed in terms of information to people, the military can't possibly have been happy about finding out that that was... No, you know, no. I mean, the there was, uh, you know, there, there was, you, you call it a popular front against Trump uh, yeah. after the election that uh, involved most of the country's uh, elites, uh, business, uh, military... Mm -hmm. um, they refused to cooperate with this stuff, including judges that Trump himself uh, had appointed. So, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't have our uh, we didn't have our 1923 beer hole. I mean, we didn't have a we didn't have a major fascist episode in the country. Right. And I said, but, you know, again, 
these things can get resolved in, in a right-wing direction. They can, we can go in a New Deal kind of direction, which is mm-hmm. what Biden's trying to do. Or we can be in a kind of situation that Britain was in in the 1930s, where we just muddle through, where there's mm-hmm. a kind of difficulty making any decisions. Um, and I think that uh, I look towards these 2022 elections as being very important, because I think that'll really be an indication whether we're going to have in this country a kind of what I uh, political scientists called an unstable equilibrium between the parties where they keep mm-hmm. changing uh, places and where legislation and initiatives that one does get undone by the other mm-hmm. or whether we are going to really go in a new direction and and um, you know again there's intimations of that in what Biden is proposing uh, not even so much in relief, but in the in the uh, jobs infrastructure stuff. Um, so, but we'll have to see because if if the Democrats lose the Congress, if they lose even the House in 2022, he's going to be stalled, and it's going to be like mm-hmm. Obama was from 2014 to 2016. Mm-hmm. Well, again, we're in a kind of critical period, the way we were in the late. 20s and way Europe was as well, um, mm. but it's not. It hasn't resolved itself. We're in the middle of it right now. Well, let's do a little more history then. You you had some very interesting observations um, about. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about populism first. It's some very interesting observations about both Huey Long and George Wallace. And one of the things you said about George Wallace, I I had not read anywhere, which was that he really wasn't such a, a, a strident racist when he got started um, that he actually did it for political reasons more than anything else. Uh, maybe, maybe not anything else, but at least he had mixed motives about it. And I was wondering how many populists, you know, that are, uh, you know, that stoke the racist fire that do you think are actually sincere about their racism and, and how many do it just because it's good politics? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And we actually don't know the answer. I mean, with Wallace, he starts out as a new dealer and uh, Mm -hmm. starts out as uh, influenced by the Huey Long anyways. And uh, he loses his election. I can't remember. It was 58 or 60. And Mm -hmm. he uses this phrase that he's not going to be out niggered again. And Mm -hmm. he's a a racist um, demagogue. And Mm -hmm. curiously, though, when he becomes reelected again, I think, what, 76 or 78, and uh, he goes back to the old George Wallace. So it was opportunism. I look at a guy like this guy, Josh Hawley, the senator Mm -hmm. from Missouri, from Stanford, very fancy elite uh, background. Um, I had him in my, in the uh, early versions of my books. Uh And, uh, because a lot of what he talked about and what Marco Rubio talks about, too, um, r- rings again as a, as a kind of conservative but a benign way to deal with what the problems that are facing us. He talks about the problems with market fundamentalism, the kind of politics that reign from Reagan on, where mm-hmm. let the free market have, have its hand, don't let government intervene. But then this guy gets involved in the January 6th to stop the steal of the action, and I start scratching my head. So I think yeah. he's a good example. I, yeah. I uh, In my revised version of the books, I wrote them out because I figured, you know, <laughs> I just don't know. Uh, yeah. Rubio, though, is an example of a, of a more, you know, again, a conservative version, again, again, of the kinds of things that Biden is trying to do. Uh, not pro-union. 
um, probably not in taxes, pro tax, you know, going to going to do the ki- kind of progressive taxation reform that Biden wants to do. But again, the need for government to um, help people uh, develop uh, industries develop, especially in these left behind towns in the Midwest and South. So uh, again, uh, that that's the kind of you know, the Republican Party might go in that direction or it might go in a very dark direction. And to what extent they're driven by opportunism, I, you know, we don't we don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that Marjorie Taylor Greene really does believe all the nonsense she talks about. Mm-hmm. The yes, other yeah. people, you know, you get like Kevin McCarthy is all over the place. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think he is uh, he he's mostly has his ear to the political ground. Yeah. Good, good, good comparison examples. Um, you have a lot of uh, statistics or analysis of who voted for whom, and, and not just in America, but also in Europe. And uh, one of the conclusions that you reached was that there's sort of this, as you've been talking about, right-wing and left-wing populism, for example, um, and sort of right-wing and left-wing nationalism. And you, you sort of indicated that the right-wing uh, you know, versions of these things tend to thrive in a wealthier situation and the left wing tend to thrive in a a less wealthy, a poorer situation. And when you, especially when you're talking about Europe and Northern and Southern, um, does that make you wonder whether we're in, you know, as, as the world becomes wealthier or as the civilization becomes wealthier, that we are in for more right wing uh, versions of this than we've had before. I mean, that's, when, are you concerned about that? No, that I think Europe is such a special case because of the euro mm-hmm. and the way really euro, the euro uh, adherence to the euro and adherence to the growth and stability pact, which limits mm-hmm. each country as far as it's uh, what it can do to help the economy. And uh, they, you know, the other thing is you can't do state aid. You can't do industrial policy as individual mm-hmm. states uh, really has strangled the left. So, I mean, what we've seen in the last few years is a lot of the um, left-wing populists in the south of Europe, mm-hmm. uh, in Spain, um, the, what I always get their names mixed up, the five million whatever's in Italy, Pisa mm-hmm. in Greece have, have really fallen by the wayside. And... Uh, uh, because they really aren't able to do anything uh, as a, within a nation. And uh, what becomes much more viable is a kind of right-wing uh, uh, populism there as well as in the North, where you're uh, mainly banging the drums about, uh, about immigration, uh, welfare, tourism. I mean, mm-hmm. you're for a, you know, a really good national health system, but you know, for the people who are there. And, right people who might sneak in the country so it's a so even in the north i'd say of all europe as a whole uh the more conservative kind of populism really has uh, has had a much longer life than the left-wing varieties that sprung Mm -hmm. up in 2015 2016 um the united states is different we have a they have a different situation here we have much more flexibility of what we can do and what the parties can do. So, you know, mm-hmm. we have, we have Furman on the left and the right here. <laughs> um, you, you said in your book um, that the American system, uh, the voting structure tends to move the parties and politics towards the middle on both sides. Um, but in the last few decades, uh, there, there have been, there have developed 
extreme groups in both parties. Um, and I was wondering if you attributed that to gerrymandering or the safety of the seats and therefore that the, that the, that the primaries became the crucial uh, election when the seat, seat was safe for a particular party. Or, or if you think that there's another reason why uh, there's a growth on the left in the Democratic Party and an even faster growth on the right in the Republican Party. I, I think, uh, again, I, I would compare maybe now to the fifth, 19, let's say the 1950s, mm -hmm. where you really didn't have the kind of uh, splinter movements to the same extent on the, on the left and the right, and certainly not on the, on the left. Uh, you know, I think we are in a time, and we've been he here for 20 years or more, but mm -hmm. certainly since the Great Recession, where a lot of um, accepted wisdom ha is uh, in the wastebasket. And when mm -hmm. people are really having to rethink uh, their the direction they want the country to go to, and uh, where the kind of differences geographically and demographically have, re have widened. Uh, between somebody living in small towns, let's say in the Midwest, and somebody living where I live in metropolitan uh, D.C. or the or the Bay Area, um, culture the cultural differences have come to the fore, but they're partly underlain by by the economic. So that has nourished uh, politics on the left and the right. Um, mm. The difference between the United States and Europe probably is that in Europe, because they have multi-party systems proportional voting, uh, you know, various other kinds of deals, uh, a party can stay around that's getting only 7% or 8% in the, in the polls, and then suddenly spring to life when, let's say, Angela Merkel let, lets in a million uh, refugees uh, mm -hmm. from Syria within six months, and all of a sudden, the alternative for Deutschland goes from 2% in the polls to what's I think 16% and ends mm -hmm. up as the main opposition party. And, you know, now it's back to like 10, 8 or 9%, but it'll probably stay around. In the United States, things really flicker and die in that way. Mm -hmm. And only when you have a really big upheaval, like we had Great, great Depression, mm -hmm. uh, Civil War, where the parties realign in a dramatic way. We, mm -hmm. We're not there yet. What we have are two parties that both have uh, extremes attached to them, and uh, the elections are almost going to be decided as to which uh, which extreme becomes more 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 salient. I mean, uh -huh. one of the reasons the Democrats did well in two thousand twenty, and they won, let's say, in a state like Georgia, where they won two Senate seats, was that people were were identifying Republicans with Trump who was, you know, believe it or not, very unpopular guy. I mean, you know, with 3% unemployment or something in 2018, right. the Republicans lost the, lost the House. So the, 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 the Trump became salient. And if he ran again in 2024, that would be fine. If, if, on the other hand, people mainly are voting on the Democrats as identified with causes like defund the police, then the Democrats could be in trouble. So, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, we have, we have, we both, both sides, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a little more sympathetic to the left than the right, but there are a lot of, a lot of problems with the extremes on the left. And you can look at a, you know, Portland, Seattle and places like that, that really where the, 
um, protests that were entirely justifiable descended into mayhem and looting and into demands that turned out to be totally dysfunctional. Um, to see the kind of potentials that we have on our on the democratic side for yeah. a kind of craziness that could again identify the Democrats with that, so so that's the kind of stalemate we're in uh, right now. Well, you're uh, you know more of an analyst than a prophet, I'm sure. Um, but uh, the what's going on in Israel right now, of course, has has brought up another split in the Democratic Party, um, and I was wondering if you thought that that was going to you know become stronger and stronger and whether that was going to affect democratic politics here? Uh, no, I don't think it'll affect democratic politics that much. Mm -hmm. I mean, it'll affect fundraising to some extent. Uh, um, I, you know, I, I, I'm Jewish myself and I wrote a book on uh, Truman and Israel and um, mm -hmm. I have my uh, extremely strong feelings about it, and and my feelings run along the pretty much along the lines of Sanders and the people who are uh, who who want to see us um, uh, use our uh, whatever powers we have to uh, force the Israelis to find some kind of peaceful resolution to what's going mm -hmm. on there and to end the occupation. But mm -hmm. that part of the world has less and less influence on our politics here. And the reason is because oil is not as important. We have, you know, important. we're relatively self-sufficient. You know, 50, 60 years ago, it was an enormous deal. Now it's more gonna get fought out. Uh, uh, you know, Dearborn, Michigan with a lot of Palestinians are gonna be very mad if Biden uh, mm -hmm. uh, ends up not doing anything forceful. Uh, in New York City and parts of, you know, orth Orthodox New York City or my neighbors in Kemp Mill are going to be mad if he puts a lot of pressure on uh, on Israel. But I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's going to be a decisive issue in American politics itself. Well, um, let's go uh, since we're just in foreign policy in, in your portion on nationalism. I thought you, you did a, a great and concise job of explaining where our U.S. foreign policy stumbled seriously time and time again, uh, especially in the Middle East, but we were just talked about that, but in Russia and China. And I, I'm always reminded of, you know, not that we did something that caused Japan to, to, to uh, engage in World War II uh, directly, uh, but that we handled the whole situation so stupidly from, you know, uh, 1900 until 1930 that we certainly were a proximate cause or whatever, I mean, just something off to the side. And it seems to me that you, you had a very good beat on both what we did wrong in Russia and China and what their nationalism, uh, if we don't take it into account, we're just gonna keep getting it totally wrong. And I'd really love to hear you, you know, tell everybody your, your perspective on both of those issues. Oh boy, yeah. Yeah, even if it takes the rest of the hour, I, I thought it was- <laughs> No, it's no, more, no. I'm not it's the most crucial, most crucial, uh, I think, um, part of the knowledge about, you know, of, of where we could go wrong dealing with both Russia and China in the next 20 years is, is we certainly don't want to repeat what we just have done for the last 30. You know? Well, I, you know, I, during the Iraq war, I wrote a book called The Folly of Empire. Mm -hmm. That was uh, about um, the lessons we could have learned from uh, Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, both of whom um, started out in some senses as, especially uh, Theodore Roosevelt as uh, proponents of American imperialism and ended up in different ways seeing that uh, what could go wrong. 
But that kind of evangelical vision of America, of what we can do and what it's possible for us to do, uh, has functioned in such a way as to get us into situations where we really don't appreciate uh, other countries and what their national interest is and other people and how they mm-hmm. see their own destinies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the obvious thing and what sparked me to write the book at the time was Iraq, where we thought that, um, you know, the, I didn't think so, but the uh, people who were in charge in Washington thought that the American troops would be greeted with, uh, you know, flowers and confetti and parades and stuff like that. Instead, we got into a, you know, decade long uh, war. Uh, mm-hmm. Russia, uh, early 1990s, Cold War ends, we get into, again, this kind of evangelical, and I'm not using it in terms of, you know, the modern Protestant, but again, the idea of America as the new Israel, as an example of changing Mm -hmm. the world, we get this idea that we're, that there is, uh, that we're a unipolar world, and that we can really change the world according to our image mm-hmm. we don't appreciate uh, R- russia so we go ahead uh, contrary to what we uh, uh, promised to gorbachev and expand mm-hmm. nato and we're still living with the results of that um mm-hmm. you know you have to go through the b- particulars but um again the rise of putin is a product partly of uh, the way we uh, propped up yeltsin in in mm-hmm. russia and mm-hmm. that was, again, based on the idea that we could bring some kind of uh, free market capitalism to Russia, which uh, descended into a uh, kleptocracy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and partly on the idea that Russia wouldn't mind if we kept uh, expanding the, the uh, reach of our uh, alliance to their uh, borders. So, you know, both these things um, lead to, to, to Putin's rise as a nationalist. Um, China, we're under the illusion that uh, if we put them in the WTO, they will become not only uh, free market capitalists, but capitalism nourishes democracy and that we would get a, uh, you know, we, we would, after a decade or two, get a country that was very congenial, that was sort of a huge version of, let's say, South Korea, which mm-hmm. you know, did begin as a dictatorship and ended up now as a wonderful country and stuff. But, you know, it didn't work out that way. And not only mm-hmm. did it not work out that way from the standpoint of their government, but uh, trade relations, they were able to take advantage of the rules of the WTO as a developing country. Um, to outprice us and, you know, put a lot of industries out of business in the United States. Two million, mm-hmm. well, I don't know, you know, there's different estimates. But um, again, that contributed a lot to the rise of Trump. And Biden himself is still trying to figure out how we deal with China and China's economy. And with mm-hmm. a lot of the com- companies like Apple, as we learned today from the New York Times, um, who have this incredible stake in China, and in fact are, in, are contributing to the uh, uh, dictatorship that's going on there, the kind of cyber dictatorship. Mm-hmm. So... Um, in all these cases, not appreciating other people's national interests, uh, the, uh, having this kind of view of the world that we could make the world, remake the world in our image, uh, has led to all kinds of mistakes in our foreign policy. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Freud would have a field day with the idea of how we project 
but we don't even have here onto everybody else and say that they can get there in three years or whatever, whatever. It's just, it, it seems um, so. Um, well, Afghanistan is the latest and it's, it's yeah. a tragic situation there. I mean, you know, we can't do anything. I guess we have to leave, but a lot of girls in schools are going to get killed. It's just, it's an awful situation. But uh, again, it's intractable. We don't know. We can't remake that country. And yeah. we tried for what, you know, 18 years or something. Yeah. And we, we, you mentioned about the promises that we made to Russia about not, you know, not bringing NATO to its doorstep and so on. And I, I think of the promises that were made to the Kurds at the time of, you know, the, the first war against Saddam, the Kuwait war. Um, and then, you know, so every, everybody should revolt against Saddam, you know, and then when they did, we didn't do anything. You know, and the Shiites was particular. Yes, and the Shiites and, and the Kurds, right? Exactly. Right. And they just say, okay. And, and, and so after you do something like that, it's very hard uh, for either of those groups to trust. You. America is not a, a good colonial power. We don't do good at that stuff. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm being partly sarcastic. I mean, but yeah. you know, the British had, you know, 100 years of stuff occupying places, yeah. screwing around with them. But the United States goes in. We really are not very good at uh, becoming a, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the having this, the, the Lord Mountbatten's are not around in the United States to take over uh, in the same way. And so we screw things up. And, uh, you know, if you, you think look that's at to Central our America to our, now, hmm? You think that's to our credit as Americans that we can't be good colonialists? Well, it's or, not or... to our credit that we try it, that, that we think we can do it. That's the problem. <laughs> we go in and we're really, uh, we really don't have it. And we don't have the public commitment to doing that thing. And mm -hmm. people are not with us on that kind of uh, adventurous foreign policy. But again, if you, you know, again, our immigration crisis with Central America, mm -hmm. underdeveloped countries still dealing with, um, uh, you know, almost failed state regime kind of things. To what extent is that a legacy of American, uh, you know, imperialism in Central America? Um, I, don't, I don't know. But mm -hmm. we haven't done a good job there. The French are dealing with Algeria, Tunisia, you know, all those countries. They get the immigrants and some of them mm -hmm. start blowing things up. And now you have uh, an enormous political crisis there. And people are talking about maybe Marine Le Pen can uh, win the next election. I don't think so. But again, mm -hmm. the, uh, the failure of their imperial adventure in North Africa coming back to haunt them. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Evo Morales in Bolivia um, in his 2006 election as an example um, of, of a populist uh, leader. And uh, you, you didn't flesh it out very much uh, in, in the book as an example. I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about that background. I have a little bit of personal background on that that I, I get to in a second. You, you know, 400 times more than I do about oh, okay. no, I just, I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't know a lot about Latin America. And uh -huh. I'm not going to fool your audience into thinking I know anything about it. Well, I'm not a, a political analyst, but I, I did. Um, it was just interesting. It was like one of those um, uh, butterfly wings events, uh, you know, that, that, that you just can't believe how it, how it lined up. But uh, I was doing some work uh, for Bolivia for, um, you know, having uh, more uh, elect uh, water, energy, hydropower plants being built and stuff like that for La Paz. And uh, then in 2000 and 2001, there was the uh, crisis 
in California's electric uh, system, which was caused, which nobody knew at the time, but was caused by Enron's traders. And, right. and so we were down in, in, in Bolivia working on something else, and the government tried to get us involved in the idea of taking their natural gas and bringing it down to the coast and then bringing that to, to, to up to California so that, because natural gas was what would really supply the electric power industry. So they worked on this for, for oh, about a year or something like that. And it was interesting that the history got in the way because it cost $300 million to develop this to go through Peru, and it cost only $50 million to do it through uh, Chile. But they didn't want to do it through Chile because it, they would have to use the land that Chile had taken from them in the 1890s in a war. So, so that was politically impossible. So anyway, they had this whole thing going on for about a year and a half in the government. And it was during that time that people got fed up with the whole idea and that Evo Morales began campaigning in 2001, 2002, saying that this, you're giving away our natural resources and you can't do that. And he became uh, elected to a lower level office and he developed his whole growth was based on this thing going wrong, which was designed to develop their natural gas industry that was based upon Enron's traders cheating California and California not realizing that that was what happened. And I don't, well, that's politics, right? And that's, that's a, and, and Evo Morales then ran the country for a long time. And if Enron tr traders had not done their theft of the market, uh, you know, and, and, and so on, and the manipulation of the market, that probably would have never happened. Huh. And they had a succession crisis. I do know right. that. Yeah, and they just, and they, and they just had it. Yeah, exactly. That's so it, it, it's, it's um, as you say, there's, there's always got to be um, a catalyst for things to come out. There's, uh, you know, the events keep moving along in a certain direction, but something has to catalyze it to, to, to make it move in a, in a, in a different direction. So um, you, we, we, uh, last time we talked, we talked about the, the, the last portion of your book on socialism, but I, I think it's really useful to go over again some of the big principles um, that you lay out because you, you talk about how socialism um, has a lot of different strains. And you talk a lot about Bernie, of course, and, and, uh, and that was, a, we, we last time we talked, it was before the election and Bernie was still in the election process. Um, but it's interesting how you laid out where socialism has gone since Marx or, 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 you know, and since communism and everything. And I think it's very helpful for people who keep throwing around the word socialism now to, to show a little bit about those different uh, entrance ways for socialism into our society and how different they are. Well, I... I uh... I, I wrote the book um, because, uh, to, to my astonishment, as a socialist from the 60s, um, I, you had this guy, Bernie Sanders, in 2015, 2016, getting uh, more votes in the Democratic primary than Trump and Clinton uh, put together and running as a Democratic socialist. So, you know, something happened in the, in the meantime. And I, I think that w what you saw with Sanders and what you see in the United States and to some extent also in Europe uh, is that um, the, the young uh, people are rediscovering socialism, but the socialism they're rediscovering is not uh, the socialism of Karl Marx or V.I. Lenin or Trotsky or Stalin or Mao or, you know, mm -hmm. 
Chavez or Castro or any of those people, but much more similar to a kind of advanced uh, social democracy that you find, you know, again, in Scandinavia, to some extent in Germany, France, um, where the uh, public sector has, has a much larger control, where there's a really uh, robust uh, safety net, uh, mm-hmm. where people don't have to worry about health care. They don't have to worry about uh, losing a job in the same way that Americans do. Or they don't have to worry about housing, all these kind of different things, where there's a kind of platform under people. And where, um, uh, again, or ordinary people and workers have more say in their government and what, what's going on, where workers are on boards of directors, where unions are more powerful. Now, a lot of what's happening in Europe with the formation of the EU is that the social democracy that was built there after World War II has eroded. Mm-hmm. But the socialist parties it, that have tried to um, find their way and that are simple, are, have been throttled by the rules of the EU. Uh, United States, um, again, we have a very divided population. For people who grew up in the Cold War, a lot of people still identify socialism with uh, Russia or, you know, in mm. South, South Florida with uh, Venezuela, mm. uh, so uh, Cuba. And so for them, it's not their democratic socialism is a kind of oxymoron. Uh, And uh, it became, and I think Abigail Spanberger, the politician from Virginia, made this point that a lot of the congressional candidates in swing districts uh, had to say, I'm not a socialist. I don't believe in defunding the police, et cetera, Mm. et cetera. So so right now, it's really a uh, it's a fledgling kind of movement and trend in American cultural and political life, but it's not a kind. It's not. It's not. It doesn't have the status, let's say, of the conservatism that arose in the fifties and sixties and would mm-hmm. capture the uh, Republican Party. I think that you know what you see instead is a kind of shadow socialism where. Some of the same principles are at work, but they're not called socialists. And, mm-hmm. you know, to my amazement, uh, Biden has, has really moved very far to, to his own left um, mm-hmm. in the course of his campaign and presidency. I mean, he's advocating things in terms of uh, taxation, in terms of uh, making uh, unions mandatory and federal jobs, um, invest different kinds of investment that you know would have been uh, uh were foreign to the obama people in 2009 2010 so so we're moving in that direction but it's not going to you know i don't think it's going to be called socialism maybe in 20 or 30 years when you know when us old people die off and uh <laughs> and a different, again because there's a certain attraction to the word socialism social versus individual cooperation mm-hmm. um it, it has christian roots uh, uh socialism in the 19th century so again there's this very attractive thing about it but it's also got a very a very bad name from the soviet union and china and so on mm-hmm. My, my favorite uh, anonymous quote is, an idea is not responsible for the people who believe in it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Mar- the idea Marx may still be useful. Wasn't hmm? happy about Marxists. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, 
In, in uh, looking back uh, again, uh, one of the things I found uh, charming about your book uh, was uh, when you, you talk about sort of uh, what's useful about nationalism, you know, and what's not useful about nationalism. You talk about what's useful about socialism, what's not useful about socialism is taken in this direction. And you, you have a kind of common sense idea about both of them, how that they can develop a better society for us. But I thought some of the ideas you 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 laughed uh, in your in your in this version of the book a little bit, um, and you said, "Be careful what you wish for; you might get it." And you were talking about Donald Trump because he actually did a little bit with the nationalism that you were thinking should be done, but he did it in such a way that it was not right, not what you were looking for. So why don't, why don't you talk a little bit about that when you you present an idea and then politics runs away with it in a different way? Because it must be fascinating to watch anything get done but then it gets done never the way I'm sure you think about it. Right. Well, it, you know, it, it's nationalism is a major issue now in a way that socialism isn't. I mean, it's a major issue in the UK. It's a major issue in uh, the United States mm-hmm. and Democrats on the left are going to have to come to terms with it. And um, to, to some, to some real extent, Bi- Biden has done so. And the, the, the basic idea is this, that, <laughs> Um, people are born and raised in a country and come to see themselves as citizens, as common as ha- as having a common ground with other people in that country, as Americans, as French, or as what have you. And that kind of c- common sensibility is essential for a democracy. To have a democracy, you have to believe that other people are, should have a right to determine. Uh, who's going to be the president. And if they, if a majority of them believe the X and you believe Y, you're still going to accept it because you're all Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, if you start, if you had Mexicans or, you know, people from Belgium voting in our elections, it would be very strange. And uh, it might be a little discordant. Uh, mm-hmm. And you might not, you know, people wouldn't accept the results. If you have a welfare state, if you have a state where you're going to give unemployment insurance to people, where you're going to give them old age insurance, I have to be able to believe that the taxes that I'm paying are going to go to somebody that I'll never know, I'll never see, but you know who's worthy of getting them because that person is also an American and is also paying taxes, or if it's not mm-hmm. paying tax because they're, you know, got hit by a car or whatever, got their right. hands, and, you know, mauled in a machine. So you have to have this basic kind of national trust and feeling. And a lot of the problems we're having in the United States and Europe and the UK is because it's that kind of common sentiment is fraying. And mm. it's fraying in, you know, obviously in, in two extreme ways. On the one hand, you get the... Um, you know, whatever, white nationalists, crazies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the other hand, you get people that saying, well, the American Revolution was crap. It was really made to, in order to uh, promote uh, slavery. And mm-hmm. that uh, America is basically a racist nation. You know, in other words, nothing good about it. I was, I, when I went to Britain uh, for the uh, labor conference before the election, I was just amazed at how the people were running, running down their own country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, blaming it for climate change because it started the Industrial Revolution, uh, mm-hmm. thinking that, you know, it should pay reparations to all these different countries. You, you, 
again, countries are good and bad, and we have, we it's a complicated thing. But if we start questioning the basic what what we have in common. Uh, then we get into trouble and suddenly people don't support an advanced welfare state. Suddenly they start questioning uh, democracy. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things, again, this was, you know, you wonder why the Labour Party is now uh, on, you know, on the verge of collapse. People at, the, at um, their Labour conference uh, voted to allow EU, anybody who came from the EU to vote in the national elections. In other words, mm-hmm. they wanted you know, if somebody came over to work, um, you know, for six months, they should be able to vote as a prime minister. Now, that just struck me as crazy because, mm-hmm. again, you're you're violating a base a basic kind of thing. A nation is for us for our last three hundred or whatever years the basic unit on which we have to found our democracies and welfare states. And if you start taking that away, you get into trouble. And, you know, that's the kind of trouble that the EU is in because it's, again, overreached, I think, in terms of what it wanted to take control of. Common trade, customs union, all these common foreign policy, fine. But when you get, again, into dictating the economic policies of each member country, then you're going to get chaos. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I I didn't get to include the, the chaos over the vaccine and what happened there with AstraZeneca, but that was a perfect example of, again, the dysfunction mm-hmm. of that kind of supranational institution. So again, nations as basic units is important and that we have to respect that, but it can obviously go crazy. It can go awry. And that's what happened with uh, Trump and the, you know, Mexican rapists and, you know, Charlottesville and what, what have you. We've had, we've had a real bout of very malignant nationalism, but Mm -hmm. that shouldn't lead us uh, to reject the principle. And when, you know, Joe Biden talks about he wants to make a United States. He gets a, hits United. That's very good. He wants to make things made in America. Very good. Those are those are good sentiments, and we should support that. So that's my that's my pitch on uh, nationalism. Well, you, you you talk in your book about how it's an outgrowth or or a, a, a bigger version uh, of the feelings people have for their own families. You know, and maybe the clan, and then moves out to the whole nation. <laughs> And right. uh, so, so that significant issues, uh, why, why you would think big, bigger cultural issues uh, would matter. Do we all agree on democracy? Do we all agree on this? But actually, language, if we all speak the same language, that's probably more important to most people as they would in a family. But uh, your, your, your statement about it just reminded me that, you know, a family will invite lots of people to certain things, but other things they're never going to invite uh, anybody outside their family to, because this is just... This is just the family and everybody in the family. And they may not even like their family members as much as they like some of the people outside, but they'll still draw the line around, around their family. So um, writ large, it seems to me what nationalism often uh, amounts to, in spite of the fact that's, uh, that has both positive and negative elements to it. Right. It's a, I use a comparison of, uh, Again, if you think of of uh, circles, the first family, biological, you really, it's very hard. I mean, you know, people, are, there are orphans and things like that, but families are knit together by this bi- biology. At the very other extreme, I'd say are sports fans. You know, I, mm-hmm. I've, I gave up the Oakland Raiders finally when they moved to Las Vegas, you know, I <laughs> you know the 
for a long time. But you know, you give you you're not uh, you give up your allegiance, even though it's important to people. I mean, mm. I you know, I, I'm I don't think I'm the only one who would. I go to I'm depressed at night when the Cubs, Chicago Cubs, my baseball team loses. It's a it's an allegiance, but. Again, nation is closer, obviously, with nation. You know, there are people who emigrate and our country was, you know, based partly on people who left England. But there is this kind of common feeling and common sentiment. And we have our holidays, Thanksgiving. Um, The battle about the monuments, again, is very much about American history and about being an American. So we are we are going through a period of real upheaval in terms of the definition of American and uh, if we don't have that, if we don't have that common feeling, then we are, do splinter as we are splintering mm-hmm. along a sort of social, cultural, as well as economic lines. Um, you, you talked in your book about um, somewheres and anywheres, and then you, you, you said anywheres are really actually cosmopolitan. And uh, you gave away, you just mentioned the Chicago Cubs, you gave away your Chicago roots uh, in, in your book uh, by saying when you, when you said, well, cosmopolitans have more identity between themselves and other big cities than they would between Racine and something else. And you mentioned Racine, Wisconsin, as if everybody would know what Racine was. But you have to be from, from the Chicago area to know Racine. So I thought that was interesting. I didn't even remember mention, mentioning Racine. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> I, I grew up in Kenosha. Uh, right, yeah, right, that's right what I was going to say. Bars. Everybody knows because of Kenosha. Yeah. And everyone knows Kenosha now, but it didn't, didn't before. But anyway, so so the Chicago Cubs and being depressed about them not winning, that's a, a, an experience. Well, we it's, a, it's a matter, again, of multiple identities. This is right. my original idea. I got a lot of it from a guy named David Goodhart, a uh, the political theorist in, in Great Britain who was writing about Brexit and was using that term to analyze it. And uh, basically what you have in the country, especially if you look at small town America, uh, deindustrialized uh, areas like West Virginia that used to be strong, mining used to be, coal mining used to be strong. Uh, You have these kind of areas in the country where people have been stripped of much of their basic expectations about life, that they would have lifetime employment, their kids would work in the same kind of jobs, that they had neighborhoods wherever they were going to know everybody, there were bars, there were churches. And in that situation, they very much fall back on very basic kinds of things like family, flag, guns as a way to, again, protect protect the home. Uh, Whereas for somebody who, um, again, went to a fancy school, was a lawyer at a big law firm and lives in Washington, D.C. or Bay Mm. Area, whatever, they have multiple identities. They have their college, you know, and uh, I used to tell a story about when I when I went first arrived in Washington, I used to count in my mind how long it would take before people would tell me what fancy college they went to. And sometimes they tell you also what prep school they went to. They would just speak into the conversation. But again, their firm they identify with, they, you know, again, they have a multiple set of, 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 of identities where, you know, the, the Union Hall no longer exists in Mansfield, Ohio, where Sherrod Brown used, grew up, big mm-hmm. UAW, uh, United Auto Workers, steel plants, all that stuff is gone. The, uh, the, the Union Hall is now a, a, a Jews for Jesus uh, 
assembly hall. So there you go. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but, but again, this whole kind of air web of identity becomes uh, becomes shorn, and you get you get a you get very basic things becoming important. And so something like that happened with Brexit. I mean, Brexit wasn't just a calculation in Great Britain about well, we'd be better off, um, you know, if we got out of the uh, European Union. Though I mm. think there were good arguments for that. But again, it was an idea of na- nation. We we should have our our national identity. It was the importance mm-hmm. of that. And um, for a lot of the people, the Remainers, uh, it was uh, that that was just seen as bigoted or n- the product of imperial nostalgia. They wanted to go back to the Victorian era or whatever. So mm-hmm. again, this is a big issue in the United States now, obviously, and it's it's a big issue there as well. Yeah, you, as we were talking earlier about uh, not understanding, say, the Russians or the Chinese, uh, it seems that the cosmopolitans and the somewheres, the people who are located in their communities, and that's their, that's their life, um, don't understand each other, you know, uh, can't, can't see how strong certain issues are for them for the, exactly the same reasons. But almost everybody that's talking about the issues uh, comes from the cosmopolitan group because they're the writers and they're the they're they're the speakers and they they go to the big cities and talk about these things and write the books. So it, it, it's true that there are representatives of, of of the other group too, but the vast majority of people who write history, who write this, who write that, are all people who look at it from a certain point of view. Uh, well, I would yes, you say majority. Yeah, but- the majority. There's Fox, there's whatever that other thing is called, One On or something like that, <laughs> Newsmax. I mean, there are other, there are alternative uh, uh, media. And one wonders, mm. some of the people who work for them, uh, the same question that you asked me about politicians, what they really believe yeah. some of the stuff that they talk about. So uh, <laughs> I mean, there are obviously all, all, alternative visions in america and there are people who try to uh, appeal again to the other one half rather than the other Uh, but to a great extent the media is dominated by uh, cosmopolitan america i'd like to ask a question about your writing you know i mean you've done so many books writing and what what made you get into writing and uh also you've just finished a a really big project three books and then combine them all into one book you must have another thing on your on your uh, plate for the future. Um, so, if you could talk a little bit about how you got into writing and then what you're going to do next, that'd be great. Oh God, how I I, I you know I got into writing because uh, probably because I was an only child and had a miserable teenage year, and mm-hmm. you know it's a kind of um, and I read books a lot, and, and mm-hmm. uh, it's a way of expressing yourself. I think you'll find that same kind of story among a lot of people. Uh, who turn, turn out to be uh, writers. And, uh, you know, before I did politics, I thought I could be a novelist. And I, you know, tried, tried out at that for a while and uh, didn't, didn't do very well. Um, and, and I finally got into writing about uh, politics. But, but again, it goes back to when I was, I don't know, 12 years old, 13 years old, uh-huh. stuff like that. I mean, you have a lot of stories about, you know, lonely girls and the Bronte sisters. I mean, I don't know, yeah. you know, but, but that was, that's the experience of finding some way to express yourself uh, mm-hmm. and not, and not being just part of a whole social, social network again, to get back into that term where you don't have to worry about it. I mean, I yeah. was a 
introverted, lonely kid. So that's the that was, I think, the basis of how how I got into writing. I'm not sure what I'm gonna do next. I'm uh-huh. um, Rui Tashera and I, who wrote the um, we wrote the Emerging Democratic Majority together, have talked about doing another book together, but I don't know quite know. I think we're gonna have to wait to see what happens in 2022 uh, to decide. Mm-hmm. Well. Uh- Another issue that, that's a little unusual in America right now that, that uh, you know, our generation is, is responsible for uh, is in this last election, almost all the front runners were over 70 years old. Um, I thought it was extraordinary, almost to the extent that I thought, you know, it really, it really should, not for any particular person that was involved, but you really probably should say the first time you run for president, you know, you have to be 65 or younger. So that you know, eight years later, you're 74 or whatever, and if you run for the two terms, so that people aren't president after they're 75 years old, it just seems like it's. I, I don't. I think Biden's doing a fine job. Uh, everything that everybody said about how he wasn't going to be able to do it doesn't seem to be true at all. Uh, but but it's a lot of pressure for somebody that age um, to stand up under, and uh, you know, you, you can be advisor in the background sort of thing, but it would. It just seems reasonable to, to set some kind of age limit. I mean, I hate to, I mean, I'm already over the age limit myself. So um, it, it just seems like, you know, why it, it seems like a baby boomer uh, kind of thing to do to, 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 to just never give up the, the positions in at, at the universities or in politics, <laughs> just hold on to everything. Um, I, I worry about that. And I worry about that uh, with the Democrats. Mm-hmm. I think the Republicans are a little better situated there. But I think in the Re- Democrats, there's a real uh, generation gap. And mm-hmm. uh, you go from the people who are over 65, Elizabeth Warren, Biden, Sanders, uh, and you have to go back to the real, you know, to see some real fire and interest to the uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Katie Porter in California, mm-hmm. a lot of younger people. But, you know, in between uh, the people who are being groomed to be the next uh, uh, presidential candidate, the next uh, Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, uh, it's it's harder to see. There's been a there there is a kind of loss the generation the party and it's partly a product of of the democrats getting slaughtered in all these state and local elections so we don't have a lot of uh, governors and state officials work, work working their way up um whereas you know the republicans have uh, they're they're going to have a lot of uh, people running for office who are in their 50s and 60s uh, i think in 2024 unless the the wild man trump uh, decides to run again and people are more scared to uh, contest him uh, so, uh, and, and I, you know, I, I, I share your concern about people over 70, um, mm-hmm. being that myself and, and, uh, uh, by Biden's ability to do the job, but he's surprised us so far. So, you know, yeah. so you, you have uh, a lot of great perspective on, uh, Europe. How did you develop this? You know, in addition to studying America, you started, must've studied what's going on in Europe because you always have a lot of similar and contrasting experiences that went on in Europe in your books. Um, how did you develop well, I that? Don't, uh, I, I can't claim to be a big uh, student of Europe. You know, I, I uh, did the books partly because uh, I wanted to learn more about Europe. I actually went to Japan a lot in the 1990s and I knew mm-hmm. and I wrote about that, but 
Um, I didn't, uh, I mean, I paid attention to Europe, but I didn't go there and do interviewing and stories really until the 2000s or so. Um, mm -hmm. I got into some junket with uh, all these German foundations and they kept inviting me to come over and I spent six months living in Berlin and it's like mm -hmm. that. So, you know, it was, uh, it was during that period, but uh, it didn't, didn't go back very far. I, I mean, I was one of those people who really didn't, except for going to maybe Vancouver and Mexico City, I had, didn't go to Europe until I was 50 or so. So, uh -huh. so I'm not a world traveler. I'm always, uh, I mean, I, I, and I still feel that America is the place that I really know about. Mm -hmm. when, I, when I was doing the, they just, my publisher uh, just reminded me of this story when we were, Uh, negotiating the populist explosion, the first book, um, it, it was in the oh, spring maybe of 2015 may, or maybe early, very early summer. And they wanted me mainly to do Europe because that was where mm -hmm. things would be happening. I said, well, you know, America is the thing I know about and I'm not going to do this book unless I can do Trump and Sanders and people like yeah. that. Trump, he's, he's going to be out of the race in two months. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, that ended up being the strong point he could have been out of the out of the race too much yeah. but so well, any, basically america is my my home and that's what i know the most about and europe is i'm fascinated by but i'm not a uh, europeanist so, so to speak um you, you mentioned this uh, answer that you you did something in japan in the 90s did you did you find some of the effect on Japanese culture to have been due to the American occupation after World War II? Did you see any influences there that you, that you noticed? Or do you think that it was that they had more or less um, recovered their own way of doing things? Um, I think they the... recovered their own way of doing things. And, yeah. you know, in foreign policy, they were still in hock to us uh, mm -hmm. and, and still are to a great extent, part of the nuclear umbrella. And so, um, But but in terms of government and things like that, very different from the United States. Mm -hmm. um, much more uh, status than America, much mm -hmm. less individualist than America. I mean, American indiv individualism has many good things to it. I mean, you couldn't have had Silicon Valley and uh, you know Wozniak and Jobs in the garage and all that stuff without the, our entre individual entrepreneurship. But During this vaccine pandemic, boy, you really saw the, again the uh, the dark mm -hmm. side of it in terms of trying getting people to wear masks, all this stuff that we, and mm -hmm. still we can't get uh, you know a large number of people in America vaccinated. Uh, mm -hmm. where, you know, from my standpoint, it should just be compulsory, like a driver's license. I mean, you should mm -hmm. be able to go driving in a road and similarly, but but again. Um, Japan, not the, Japan. I always used to make fun of the people because they wore masks all the time, you know, right, right. on the street because they were worried about colds and infection during the flu during the you know, winter. But now it turns out uh, they were they were ahead of us in that respect. Yeah, I was going to say that that, that shifted the. Uh, I lived in Hong Kong for a while, and uh, and also I've done a lot of work in Asia, and I it certainly shifted that idea, the vision of people walking around with masks on, saying, you know, are you overdoing it? But no. <laughs> Yeah, now, yeah, that's right. Now you don't feel that way anymore. It's quite different. Yeah. Um, but you touched on it. You know, you, you say if, if you make it compulsory, you know, as soon as you say it's going to be compulsory, you know, the, the, the conspiracy uh, concepts say, you know, everyone's trying to, to, you know, Bill Gates is trying to 
that control our entire lives I by know, putting the shit hits the fan. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and the courts would throw it out too. I bet so. You yeah, know, I, but but still, that's what I believe. I mean, because yeah, not, I mean, it's not a matter of uh, freedom to be able to infect other people. Right. It's just like the old quarantine rules. You know. It, right. It, it, it's 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 a a health issue. The question is, as you said before, how much do you trust the people who make those decisions? And if you trust them a lot, you cooperate, um, you know, and if you don't trust them, you don't. And uh, we're in a divided time when people really don't trust it, or at least a, a big chunk of the people don't trust it. So, Yes, that's the other thing you have to have for a democracy. You have to have expertise. You have to have, uh, you, you have, to have an effect. Or, I don't want to say a ruling class, but you, you have to have an, a, a knowledgeable elite that has the trust of people who don't have the time during the day to learn the details of a trade agreement or DNA or mm-hmm. you, you know whether a drug's going to be safe and all this kind of stuff. And if that starts to break down again, you have a de- your democracy's in trouble. And again, one of the scariest things about Trump during 2019-20 was his attack on expertise and science. Mm-hmm. And this isn't to say that the CDC did everything right. Obviously, right. They, I mean, they screwed up and, you know, Fauci made a lot of mistakes. But again, it's a... That kind of knowledge is remediable. You know, you can right. you can recognize errors and improve on it. Um, a more quasi-religious faith in QAnon or some conspiracy theory is not verifiable one way or another. It's just all, you're always going to find things that that tell you it's true. And that kind that kind of knowledge came to the fore, and that's scary. Again, that, yeah. and that has echoes of the twenties too. It, it seems one thing that's kind of splitting in a way that we, we, we either need to bring it back together again or we're going to face more of it is if you, like in the case of Fauci or the CDC and so on, if you think that they're making mistakes, but they're trying hard and they're sincerely trying to do the right thing, then you kind of trust them because you expect people to make some mistakes in situations like this. But if you think that they have ulterior motives for, you know, and everything that they say that then has to be revised was part of a big line that they're just lying all the time. Then, then you don't. And I think that's where the trust is. Can you trust? And can you trust the people who are making the decisions to be at least trying to do things on behalf of the public good? Um, and and every every person that's in that position who doesn't do that undercuts that. Uh, and that's to me what undercuts uh, the trust in democracy the most are the leaders who who don't have that attitude they can make mistakes i don't i don't people have a pretty high standard right now and ask everybody who's ever been an artist or whatever to never have made any uh comment that was uh you know off color or anything for their whole lives and all that kind of stuff so there, there's a too high a standard anyway but if you just say you know you'll make some mistakes but you shouldn't make any really big ones yeah it, it was in in new york uh in business you know it was kind of a, sort of a unwritten rule that if you're really good at this you you err about two percent of the time and and you admit it when you make the mistakes you right. know anybody who's saying they're right all the time is clearly wrong um and anybody who's making mistakes 10 percent of the time is not good enough to be doing this job but somewhere <laughs> somewhere yeah. in the sweet spot is willing to admit you're wrong only making mistakes two to three percent of the time then you're a top professional that kind of it's a, it's a, it, it creates trust if people are 
both skilled and honest about their mistakes. And, and, and when you and don't have don't, that combination, it doesn't create trust. Yeah. That's part of the problem. Yeah. And, and your books, your books uh, always evince exactly that, you know, professional combination, which is, you know, one of the things I think that they're so powerful about. So thank you very, very much uh, again for, uh, you know, talking to the Commonwealth Club audience. Um, is there anything you'd like to, to finish with? No, I just I hope California is in good shape because I'm coming out there in September for my birthday, you know. And I will... <laughs> <laughs> we'll try to make it as good as possible for your arrival. <laughs> Every, everybody help out because John's coming. <laughs> All right. So thanks a lot uh, again, uh, John. And uh, thanks again to the audience. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 119th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.